If you have your Bible, open and find John chapter 21. This morning we are coming to the finish line of our study through the Gospel of John this school year. It's kind of crazy to think about how much ground we've covered since the sultry days under the tent in August in John chapter 1. Here we are for a look at this final chapter. I hope some of you were able to read it ahead of time. I kind of put it out there on the group me. I don't know how many of you look at it, but just encourage you to read it ahead of time. Not the first time I've said that. You, you always get more out of the passage. Uh, before you show up and hear it publicly taught or preached, you're going to get more out of that. If you read it ahead of time, pray over it, think about it for yourself. Um, and by the way, some, for, for those of you who are going to be here in the summer and or who want to keep up with us on the podcast, I mentioned last week, for any of you who may not have been here, uh, we're going to be studying on Sunday mornings through the Old Testament book of Joshua. And uh, I'm excited about that. I've never talked through Joshua, but I've mentioned a few times that um, I really uh, enjoy using the summer months to uh, dive into the Old Testament. I feel like, by and large, I don't know if you feel this, but I feel like, by and large, Evangelicals, Southern Baptists in particular, uh, are um, not nearly as well-versed in the Old Testament as we are the New Testament, um, which is a tragedy because a, a thorough understanding of the Old Testament, uh, its, its narrative, its themes are necessary for a, a deep understanding of the New Testament and even really the gospel. Um, so, and so, like I said, in years past, we've studied through uh, the Ten Commandments, which is Old Testament law. We've studied through the book of Daniel, as well as the Minor Prophets, would be Old Testament prophetic books. We've studied through last summer, even though we weren't here together, it was virtual. We studied through Ecclesiastes, which is wisdom literature. And so we haven't had a recent summer where we studied through an Old Testament historical narrative. And so, Joshua, it is. I encourage you to read that ahead of time and, and keep up with us. And while we're on the topic of what's upcoming, the current plan for next fall, spring, when you come back. We're not going to leave the Apostle John entirely, um, but we're going to study through the book of Revelation, Lord willing, uh, on Sunday morning. So I'll tell you that, too, because it wouldn't be a bad idea to read that ahead of time and do your best with it. <laughs> but this morning, we're finishing up the Gospel of John, and John 21 is a beautiful chapter. It includes the third resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. It centers on Jesus' interactions with Peter in particular, even though he's not the only disciple mentioned here. Uh, before we go any further, let's, uh, let's read the passage together, and then we'll I'll try to show you what I believe John is going to show us here. So we're in John 21. We're just going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 25. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, 
do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and said, Lord, who, who had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? That is the Apostle John, by the way. Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad, among the brothers, that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are, many, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inerrant, inspired, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Sufficient for all of our faith and practice. 
clear enough with careful study to understand it. Authoritative over us because it is your word spoken through men. Necessary for without it we can't know who you are. And uh, we ask that you would give us minds to understand what we see in John 21 this morning. Give us eyes to see it, minds to understand it, hearts to embrace it and love it, believe it, wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do in these words. Again, give us all ears to hear, I pray, and give me the help that I need to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there's a lot going on in this chapter. Um, it's not the easiest chapter to, to look at all at one glance because John has a lot of purposes. He's a, a number of different purposes going on for this chapter. Uh, obviously, one is to record another post-resurrection appearance of Christ to his disciples. And you see that, by the way. I just want to see these different purposes here. You see that purpose of John here, like right off the bat in verse 1, in the repetition of the word revealed. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way, that repetition of the word revealed in verse 1. And down in verse 14, he, he, uh, he reminds us yet again, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. The first two times, by the way, being in the last chapter. So clearly just letting us know that Jesus really rose from the dead and he really appeared bodily to his disciples, revealing himself to them again and again and again. That's the purpose of this chapter. We could spend a whole morning on that. Another purpose uh, that John clearly has in this chapter is just the trustworthiness of this account. Not just the trustworthiness of this chapter, of his, his eyewitness account of this chapter, but of the whole gospel. We saw that last week in chapter 20. It's true again here. I mean, how do you see that in this chapter? You see it just in the, in the details of this chapter. Um, like, we'll understand it more when we get to it, but if you're just, if you remember reading this and you get down to verse 8, you notice little things like how in verse 8, the, the narrator's perspective stays in the boat after Peter jumps out. You know, Peter jumps out of the boat when he says, this is it's the Lord, and he jumps out of the boat and he gets with it to shore, but John doesn't follow Peter. He's like, we still had to get all those fish to the shore, right? So you have a narrator's perspective in verse 8. Or you see it also just in pre the precise number of the fish that they caught, 153 of them. You see it also at the very end of the chapter where this, verse 24, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, bearing witness, testifying, who's written about these things. So we know his testimony as is true. And that's John's, he's consistently referred to himself anonymously throughout this, um, in the third person in this gospel. So we could spend a whole morning on that, on the trustworthiness of these gospel accounts. They are eyewitness accounts. But clearly also, John's focus is on Peter in this, in this chapter. The bulk of this chapter is devoted to him and to the risen Jesus' interaction with Peter. Um, even, even when John gives us focus right off the bat on Jesus' resurrection appearance, in that same vein, he seems to also shift our attention 
not just to Jesus, but also to Peter. Because, for example, when he says in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again, the second time he used the word revealed, he said he revealed himself in this way, in this manner, like this. And the next two words are Simon Peter, right? So John not only wants us to see see that Jesus revealed himself to Peter, his disciples after after his resurrection, but also how and in the manner that he did it, especially toward Simon Peter. Um, yeah, so there are there are uh, a number of ways that you can see um, John intentionally drawing our focus to Peter. Can I just? It, this may be a belabored point. I just this is such a fun thing to me. I want to show you something in the text that I think John is doing. John. Uh, has structured his gospel in such a way that John uh, sort of slyly uh, makes himself the first and the last disciple mentioned in this gospel. He's the first one and he's the last one mentioned in in his own book. Let me just show you how in the first, go back to the chapter one. This is kind of a detour, but you may think this is the dumbest thing, but I think it's fun. So, um, in chapter 1, you remember this, in, beginning in verse 35, it says, The next day John the Baptist, this, that's this John, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, two of John the Baptist's disciples. This is before Jesus called them. Now, who were these two disciples? Well, we're not specifically told. Um, he looked at Jesus, John the Baptist looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples, still yet unnamed, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them, those two disciples, following. Now, who were these two disciples? Well, John names one of them down in verse 40. One of the two heard John speak, who heard John speak and followed was Jesus. It followed Jesus was Andrew. Andrew was one of those two, right? So, okay, of those first two mentioned, one of those guys was Andrew. Who was the other one? Well, you're never just absolutely told who the second one or who the first one is, but there are some clues. What is what is the other one seen doing in this passage? He is seen following Jesus. And and verse uh, 38 says, Jesus turned and saw him following them. Now, go go back to the end of the book. Whoever that is, is the first mentioned disciple in this book. Notice in in chapter 21, in verse 20, all this time, I mean, in in chapter 20, all this time the, the focus has been on Peter in this chapter. But then in verse 20, we're told Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, doing what? Following them, the one who'd been reclining. That's John. And so, and, I, and by the way, Richard Balkum in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, is the one who saw all these details. I give credit to him. But it's, in that way, John presents himself on, at the front end and at the back end as the one following Jesus, been there from the beginning, still there at the end. He's the one who's been there the whole time following Jesus, I'm bearing true testimony to these things. But then, so John is the bookends of his own book. 
right? Just inside those bookends is another set of bookends, right? And who is the, the next set in? It's Peter. Uh, and, and, and so you see that when uh, you got these two disciples. But then what does Andrew do in verse 41 of chapter 1? He first found his own brother, Simon. So now Peter's on the scene, and you go back to chapter 21, and Peter's the last one mentioned before John is at the very end. So it's like John is the, the true uh, the true and faithful witness who's bearing witness to these things, and he's drawing our attention to Peter because Peter is the main spokesman of the group. And, uh, and so it's right that in this last chapter, the focus is rightly on Peter and, and, and his interaction with Peter. And I thought about how to think through what, what Jesus' interaction with Peter here shows us. It's a lot to get through, but one thing was clear to me uh, in, in this thing, and that is how Jesus restores people when they fall. How Jesus restores people when they fall. And, I, and, and, and that's certainly what he's doing with Peter here. And I'm not just talking about how he re, uh, saves sinners, like, like unbelievers when they repent. I'm talking about people who are already followers, already believers, when they fall into sin, and not just fall into sin, sometimes when they walk deliberately into sin, and in need of repentance, how does Jesus restore his people like that? That's what he's doing with Peter as a result of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus back in chapter 18. This is a picture I think we need to, to see and remind ourselves often. So as we look more closely at the details of this passage from that vantage point, I want us to see four stages Maybe stages is not the right word. Four aspects, because I don't think that what I'm about to say always happen in this particular order. But four aspects of how the Lord Jesus deals with us and restores us when we stumble and walk into sin. Um, how he brings us to repentance. How he restores us to fellowship with him. How he continues to use us for his glory and his kingdom. If you're taking notes, here are the four aspects that I find here. I'll move through them quickly because we gotta, we got to get going. First, he calls us. He calls us. I'll explain what I mean by this in light of what we, uh, what we see in the early verses of this passage, mainly verses 1 through 8. He calls us. Second, he comforts us. We see this on the, the beautiful scene on the beach by the water in verses 9 to 14. So he calls us, he comforts us. Third, he confronts us. He confronts us in our sin, which you could probably guess is seen in that well-known conversation between Jesus and Peter in verses 15 to 23. Do you love me? Fourth and finally, he commissions us, um, which we'll see in those same verses before John ends the book, assuring us of the trustworthiness of his account. So having laid out what I want us to see, let's dive in and think first about how when the Lord first begins to restore us when we have sinned and we need to come to him in repentance, he calls us. He makes the first move. Again, I think I, th this is what we see Jesus doing in verses 1 to 8. Let's look more carefully at those verses. So in verse 1, John simply draws attention to the fact of a third post-resurrection appearance of Christ to his disciples. You know, Apostle Paul 
And 1 Corinthians 15 said that Jesus made many, many appearances after his resurrection. He appeared to more than 500. Well, this is one of those times. Verse 2 outlines those disciples who were present at his appearance. You note a few, just a few things here. One, they, all of them weren't there. There were seven of them there. Two were unnamed. Thomas was there this time. He had been absent before when he doubted. You learn that, just a little tidbit, Nathaniel is, this is the first time you're told Nathaniel is from Cana in Galilee, which is where Jesus performed his first miracle back in chapter 2. Um, but the, the first thing that you might notice in this list of disciples here is that the first one mentioned is Simon Peter. I believe John mentions him first in this list to draw our attention to him out of all the others. And indeed, the focus does turn to him. In verse 3, Peter is the one who speaks up. And what does he say? I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. To which a lot of guys around here might say, heck yeah, you know. Um, but it's, it's unclear, at least to me, precisely what this reveals about Peter. I'm going fishing. I guess on the more positive spin on I'm going fishing is that it could be Peter along with the other simply waiting. Waiting uh, for the promised Holy Spirit as Jesus told them to. You remember in the last chapter how Jesus, they, there was this acted parable where Jesus breathed on them, received the Holy Spirit. That was an active, acted parable in a way, in itself, assuring them that, that, the, that he would outpour the Holy Spirit upon them and give them power. And if you're just looking across the, the page in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which would have been around this same time, uh, Jesus told them in verse 4 to wait for the promise of the Father. Wait, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, verse 5, not many days from now. So they could just be waiting, waiting for, as Jesus told them to, waiting for, them, uh, to, to, for the Holy Spirit to come. That, that's one, that's, that may be one reason why he just said, instead of just sitting here waiting, let's just go fish, you know. Could mean much of nothing. Also, another way you could look at this was fishing was Peter's livelihood. This was his livelihood. And so he could have said, I got to eat while I'm waiting. Let's go fishing. Um, I got to put food on the table. Could be innocuous like that. But on the other hand, in the case of Peter in particular, like if it was like James, the disciple, saying, let's go fishing, I would probably say, yeah, they need to eat. They don't want to just sit and wait. Let's go fishing. But that it is Peter. That it is Peter in this book. Uh, I think it, it, it could demonstrate a dejected apathy in him. It wasn't too many days earlier um, that, that the picture we see of Peter in the Gospels of him weeping bitterly over his threefold denial of Jesus Christ in a single night, just as Jesus said he would. And you say, well, is that really the case? I mean, didn't Jesus already appear to them in the last chapter? Sure. Jesus made a, a post-resurrection 
appearance to, to the disciples, Peter among them, surely. He's not mentioned specifically, but he wasn't, it wasn't like Thomas where he said he wasn't there. Jesus had said in chapter 20, uh, peace be with you. But there's no indication in chapter 20 that, that Peter had any kind of private conversation with Jesus in that moment. Um, and, and so there's all the, all the realistic chance in the world that the guilt and the conviction of his sin, of his failure, was still hanging over him even as he was delighted that the risen Jesus was standing right in front of him. Just think about how many times you know your own sin and you come and worship with your church family and you stand in here, you stand in there, and you sing and it's gospel songs Jesus exalting songs and you, and in a real way your heart leaps at that but it's almost a half-hearted leap because you still have this cloud hanging over you of your own failures of your own shortcomings of your own deliberate sins you can imagine that Peter in that moment Loving that it was Jesus, but still kind of wanting to hide in the back. And it, was, I, I could, it could very well be that in that dejected state, feeling that he was no longer worthy to continue in ministry, he simply fell back on what he knew. I'm going fishing. I don't know that we have to choose between any of those three options I laid out. If my own heart and my own mind is typical of human nature... I hope it is, then, then our souls could easily be a jumbled mess of all three. Uh, yes, he needed to eat, so he fished. Yes, he was told to wait, so why not fish? But also, yes, fishing was a whole lot easier on the conscience than preaching while he waited and bearing testimony to the risen Christ. So I don't see in I'm going fishing a, a picture of Peter abandoning his faith in any way. I don't see that at all. But I do see how Peter could be gravitating to that because of his failure. I can see him doing that because I can see myself doing that. And I don't have any doubt that you could see yourself doing that too. I Let, let me just... Be, be real honest. Preachers are people too. Preachers are, 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 are sinners too. There have been times when I know my own disobedience. And in my heart of hearts, the last thing I want to do is stand up here and preach to you. Preach to anyone else. You know? We fall into a sin, or better yet, we deliberately walk into a sin as Peter did, and our own conscience is so weighed down by our sin that we would rather distract ourselves with other things. And we keep the Lord at arm's length, out of shame. But look at what we read next. Peter said, I'm going fishing. And the other guys went with him. 
But verse 3 tells us, but that night they caught nothing. James and John were on that boat too. All three of those guys were professional fishermen. That was what they did for a living. Fished all night long. Not one fish. What are the odds of that? I don't think that was happenstance. Why? I think that was, that was the sovereign hand of the Lord. Creating circumstances to draw him back. Why do I believe that? Because of what happens next. As dawn was breaking, verse 4 says Jesus was standing on the bank of the water. They didn't re realize it was him, probably because it was very early in the morning. They were probably tired and sleepy, probably frustrated. They were 100 yards away from the shore. Jesus said, have you caught anything? They, they didn't realize it was Jesus. They said, no, he hadn't caught anything. Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side. At this point, their heads had to be turning why? Because this was like deja vu. Not to just some random other time in their life, but back to the very first time Jesus called them. The very first time they ever met Jesus. It was in Luke chapter 5. Jesus calling them for the very first time. Same kind of thing happened. Fished all night long, didn't catch anything. Jesus appears. They don't know him from Adam, but he says, hey, throw your net on the other side. Goes, what does this guy know? They catch so many fish, their nets break. And in that instance, we read in Luke 5.10, Simon Peter in particular fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus in his mercy said, get up and follow me. And here they are again, out on the water in John 21. And Jesus, unrecognized at this point, tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And again, a catch so large they couldn't haul it in. And John, John understands, John usually understands before Peter does, but Peter always acts before John does. John says, it's the Lord. As soon as Peter hears these words, he throws himself into the water. It's like Forrest Gump when he just runs off the boat, you know, seeing Lieutenant Dan. How did, how did Jesus begin calling Peter to repentance? He met him at a familiar place. And he providentially caused his circumstances to remember the Lord's mercy, not just his power. It was not just in Luke 5 where Jesus displayed his sovereign power in, over fish. <laughs> but also where he found the mercy. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, no, come with me. I can't prove that that's what happened here, but I believe that they didn't catch a single fish 
that night because the Lord just caused the fish to be somewhere else. Jesus is pretty darn sovereign over fish. I feel pretty good about that because he sure caused them to be on that particular side of the boat at his say-so. And you remember in Matthew 17 where they asked Peter about paying tax and Jesus said, hey, go throw your line out there and the first fish you catch, open his mouth and you'll find your tax money in there. He's like, what? Professional fishermen catch fish unless providentially hindered. And Jesus providentially hindered him to catch his attention, not to shame him, but to remind him of his mercy. And Peter got the message. He threw himself in the water to go to Jesus. And I'll say this, though. That was probably a very miserable night. And God brings those to us in our sin for our good to bring us to a clear sight of our sin. And we say, this stinks. And to bring us to repentance. Sometimes it's a miserable night. Sometimes it's a miserable season. Like like David in Psalm 32. For when I kept silent about my sin, when I didn't confess it to the Lord, when I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He calls us in these ways. He, before he ever says a word to us, he just lets our bones waste away in our circumstances so that we come humbly to him in repentance. That's how he calls us. Then we, when we come to him, he comforts us. Look at how, look how we see that for just a second. You know, when, when Peter abandons the boat in verse 8, I told you that John is the eyewitness here, and he's like, we still had to get all these fish to the shore. His attention stays with the boat because that's where he was. While Peter was going to Jesus, they were dragging the net full of fish. So we don't have an account of the moment that Peter reached the shore with Jesus. We don't know what happened there. John was busy with fish. But John finally does get there and catches up. And in verse 9, he says, when they got there, the first thing they saw was a charcoal fire. Are you kidding me? It tells me that's the first thing that, John, that Peter saw too, which may have caused him to have a moment of PTSD. Why? Because if you flip back to chapter 18, verse 18, you'd see that it was around, it was around a charcoal fire warming his hands that Peter had denied Jesus three times. I don't have any doubt that Peter dreaded seeing that charcoal fire. But instead of explain yourself, Peter, instead of that, what did he find when he got there? He found Jesus had made breakfast for him. He found Jesus inviting him to a meal. Let's eat, you know. Jesus told him in verse 10, bring some of the fish you caught. Not not so he could cook it. He had already made the breakfast, but so they could look at it. 
just look at this and remember, Peter especially, remember, you are dependent on me for literally everything. So Peter and, and, and the others sat down with Jesus on that beach and they ate with Jesus, enjoying Jesus' provision. Also, there's a grammatical link in verse 13, by the way. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and likewise with the fish. There's a grammatical link there to Jesus multiplying the bread and the fish in John 6. I have no doubt that for Peter, his enjoyment of Jesus' provision was all the more heightened because he could literally see the grace and the forgiveness in Jesus' eyes. And you say, how can, I, how can I be so sure of Jesus' comfort to me when I, I can't literally see the grace and forgiveness in his eyes? Because Jesus had already told you in the last chapter, like he told Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When Peter saw a reminder of his sin in that charcoal fire, it was there that he found together with it a merciful Savior. We can be sure of the same. Jesus providentially called him. He comforted him when he came. It wasn't, it wasn't first, explain yourself. It was first, I'm here. Let's eat. Jesus assured Peter of the posture of his heart toward him before he confronted him with his sin. But for Peter to really know the freedom of his forgiveness, Jesus would need to confront him over that specific sin. When the Lord restores us after we've sinned, he calls us, he comforts us, but not also without confronting us and dealing with our sin. We see this in the bulk of the last half of the chapter, verses 15 to 23. And clearly this is where we see Jesus never mentioning his sin specifically, but still unmistakably addressing it by asking him three times to correspond with his threefold denial. Do you love me? You can imagine that at the first question in verse 15, Peter was probably shocked, but not shocked. He was glad to tell Jesus, finally, Yes, I do love you. I do. Probably also glad to have now said that. He was probably a, a little more shocked when Jesus said it again. Verse 16. Do you love me? Yeah. Yes, I do. I, I do. And, and surely he meant that. Yes, I do. I do. But by the time Jesus asked a third time in verse 17, Peter knew this was squarely about his denials. And we're told there that Peter was grieved. Grieved. And don't think, don't think in that, that this is Jesus removing his comfort and grace. Jesus knows what he would later inspire the Apostle Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 7, that godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. 
that's the place Jesus was bringing Peter to, to assure him not just, hey, we're good, but this sin in particular, I forgive you. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness without regret. And I want you to notice, too, in this, in this way, that Jesus, as uncomfortable as this conversation was with, John, with Peter, Jesus talked with Peter alone about this. He didn't do it in front of the other disciples. How do you know that? Apparently, two of them had gone on a walk together after breakfast because we read in verse 20 that Peter turned and saw John following them. So not only had Jesus welcomed him at breakfast, but after breakfast he said, let's me and you go on a walk. And just, just to highlight how gently de Jesus deals with Peter over his sin. The Lord never grieves us over our sin to shame us. When you feel shame, that's the enemy. He wants to save us without regret. The Lord never grieves us to shame us, but to restore us to a full knowledge of his assurance and his forgiveness. As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, to a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted my salvation. The Lord Jesus called Peter, he comforted him, but he did confront him. And in the end, also to assure him of his grace and favor and forgiveness, Jesus also commissioned him. Just as three times Jesus posed the confronting questions to Peter because of his sin, so he followed each time with a threefold commission. Verse 15, feed my lambs. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Jesus was commissioning Peter to pastoral ministry again. And rather than his effectiveness being diminished because of his sin and because of his weakness, they are all more strengthened. He's all the, you know, because he's, why is he all more strengthened? Because on this side of his failure, he's now all the more aware of his need for the grace and the help of the Lord Jesus. When Jesus was talking, before he was like, I'll never, I'll never leave you. I'll never deny you. Very confident in himself. Now he's to a place where he, he, he knows, I can't even catch fish without his help. And also, he's all the more compassionate with other people's weakness and waywardnesses because he knows his own heart. And Jesus told Peter in verse 18 that his faithfulness would cost him his life when he was older. And Peter knew that he was... As much as he hated to hear it and grieved to hear it, he, Jesus was, was telling the truth because he begins it with, truly, truly, I say to you. At, at probably, he probably cringed when he heard Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you here because that's the same way he started 
in chapter 13, verse 38, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter knew what truly, truly meant. It was going to happen. And Jesus was prophesying that Peter would die a martyr's death for his faith. Peter asks, <laughs> he sees John following, he says, what about this guy? What about him? Jesus basically says, that's none of your business. And he looks at him and says at the end of verse 22, you follow me. You follow me. His sovereign plan for Peter was one thing. His sovereign plan for John was another. For me, it's one thing. For you, it's another. But for all of us together, it's the path of greatest blessing and the sharing in his glory forevermore. Well, this book ends with John assuring us of the trustworthiness of his eyewitness testimony. But just consider what you've seen here. To a disciple who has failed spectacularly, Jesus came to him, called him through circumstance first, comforted him by a reminder of his grace and forgiveness, assured him of his favor through a thorough confrontation and reckoning with his sin, and a commissioning to continue to bear witness to his grace in the world with his life, to the end of his life. And John said at the end of the last chapter, these things are written about Jesus so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this gospel. Thank you for its, the testimony that it bears to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his grace and favor. Thank you that grace and truth reside in him. Thank you that by believing we can have life in his name. Thank you that when we are faithless, you remain faithful. Thank you that when we don't just stumble into sin, but rush headlong into sin, you come calling us to repentance. And remind us of your grace first. Gently remind us of your truth. Bring us to repentance. Assuring us that we are still your sons and daughters bearing witness to your gospel and your grace until you return again. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.